Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla, and this is a very big day in the life of Beeson Divinity School. It is December Commencement Day, and we've just sent another wonderful group of Beeson alumni into the service of the church. We want to wish you and your loved ones a very Merry Christmas. We hope this season will be full of joy and gratitude for you as you remember our Lord's incarnation. And one of our Christmas gifts to you is the very special guest on the show with us today. He has just delivered an inspiring commencement address in Hodges Chapel. We have all kinds of things we want to ask him about. So, Kristen, let's get to it. Will you please introduce Dr. Walter Kim to our listeners? Yes, Doug. Thank you, and hello, everyone. Today in the studio, we have Reverend Dr. Walter Kim. Dr. Kim is the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. He served as the pastor for leadership and currently serves as teacher-in-residence at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. He also serves on the boards of Christianity Today and World Relief and on the advisory council of Gordon College. Dr. Kim received his PhD from Harvard University in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, his MDiv degree from Regent College in Vancouver, and his BA degree from Northwestern University in Philosophy and History. Uh, friends, he has taught classes at Boston College and at Harvard University and contributed uh, to a number of works, including the Encyclopedia of Hebrew Language and, and Linguistics, the Archaeological Study Bible, and the Soul of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Kim is a licensed minister in the Conservative Congregational Christian Conference, and he is married to Tony, and they have two teenagers. So welcome, Dr. Kim, to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you. What a delight to be a part of this conversation today. And I have had a great time at the commencement. It was a joy to see the enthusiasm uh, of the faculty and blessing the students and the students and the life of ministry that is before them. Well, it's a blessing to have you with us today, Dr. Kim, not only for Doug and me, but for our students who just graduated and our faculty and staff. Well, I've read a pretty long bio and just want to say I'm impressed by all that you've accomplished. Um, but we would like to know some uh, personal details about your life. Um, I understand that you are the child of immigrant parents. So can you tell us just a little bit about your story and how you came to know the Lord? Yeah. So... My father was uh, part of an expat Korean community in China. And as the communists were taking over the country, he and his family fled. So they were refugees fleeing the communist takeover. And their story was literally one of hiding in fields, crossing a river in a barrel, and getting to South Korea. And when he got to South Korea, eventually, that's where he met my mom. And uh, in the years after the Korean War, as they were putting their life together, they decided to try to move to America, which they did in the mid-60s. Of course, that's an incredibly complicated time in the mid-60s to move to America as they were trying to figure out what does it mean to be American. America was trying to figure out what it means to be American. And uh, entering into a country where there had been political assassinations and civil rights movement, 
Vietnam War. What does it mean to navigate this country as an immigrant? Well, people of faith were instrumental in that process. Uh, people of faith had uh, helped my parents move to America. Uh, in fact, it was a Lutheran pastor, actually, that helped them navigate the immigration system. Uh, I was born in New York City, and one of my earliest memories was living in the basement of an Irish Catholic family who taught me about baseball and how to ride my big wheel and get to the playground. Uh, and as I grew up, our family eventually moved to um, a small coal mining town in western Pennsylvania. And that's actually where I first heard about the gospel. Our family had grown up going to church, uh, but that was more of a cultural experience. Uh, it was this um, country music listening, always lived in Appalachia, youth pastor who had reached out to this Korean kid from New York City befriended me and um, did what youth pastors are really good at doing. He took me to Star Wars and then transitioned after the movie by asking me, you know, when Obi-Wan Kenobi gave his life for Luke Skywalker to be able to escape, does that remind you of anyone? And of course I said, well, I think Jesus, because we've been talking about Jesus. You know? and, uh, and we pulled on the side of the road and I prayed the sinner's prayer. And that was my introduction into a form of faith that opened up the world to me, the world of God. I want to ask you about your pastoral ministry. We've told the listeners today you're the president of the NAE, the National Association of Evangelicals, but for most of your life you served as a pastor. How'd that happen? How did you feel like the Lord wanted you to be a pastor? I would guess that a PhD student at Harvard also thought about teaching and kind of struggled with a decision about pastoral ministry versus other things. I don't want to set this up in too much detail, but just tell us a little bit, if you will, about how you got called into pastoral ministry and what your life as a pastor has been like. Yeah, part of my conversion story includes this moment, you know, after Star Wars, uh, but it includes also an event that happened not too long after that where I was at a Christian conference, and I had a sense that though I had trusted Christ for salvation, that there was still a lot that I didn't know and experience about God. And it was at that conference where I had, I can only describe it as a powerful encounter with God's Spirit, filling my life and transforming me and giving me a sense of His grandeur. Um, during that time, you know, there was this seed of thought that I would be in ministry. But much of that uh, experience shaped the way I thought of ministry as this kind of pietistic conversion story of transformation. All true, all wonderful. But my mind was left out of the equation, the life of the mind. Um, and so it took me many, many years, nearly a decade of, of walking with God, uh, before I had a sense that my mind was also a part of Christian discipleship. And once I got to that point, I thought about, oh, maybe I should go get this PhD and be a researcher. Uh, at a university, be a witness for Christ at a secular university. That's when I uh, started attending Park Street Church, which is in downtown Boston, a historic evangelical church, 200-year history, um, very faithful to the gospel, and yet very engaged in the life of the city. So downtown, so we are as apt to have a, a homeless person as a part of our congregation as we were uh, 
a, a leading scientist from one of the universities in Boston. That was the church that I first caught a true and genuine glimpse of the possibility of bringing together the different aspects of my life, my interests in a, in a gospel that changes people's lives, that is strongly missionary in focus, but one that was also penetrating into the life of the university. And when an opportunity came uh, for both my wife and I to come on staff there, um, we considered a, a, a tremendous call from the Lord to finally make sense of the different streams of our lives. Mm -hmm. And so that was the call to pastoral ministry. How that leads to the NAE was Park Street Church was instrumental in the founding of the National Association of Evangelicals. Harold John Ockengay, a former senior pastor, um, was the, the first president of the NAE, uh, as well as a number of other institutions. Uh, World Relief came out of that time period uh, from Park Street, Gordon-Conwell, Fuller Seminary. It was a really fertile time of evangelical initiative. And so I would hear these stories, and that eventually led to the opportunity to become a board member at the NAE, um, and then this opportunity to serve as president. Well, we want to talk about your role as president, but first I wonder if you can tell our listeners more about what is the NAE, its mission, its purpose. Uh, you've referenced its history, but perhaps a little bit more about its history. Yeah. So the NAE started in 1942 at a time of tremendous fragmentation in the church. Uh, this growing divide between uh, fundamentalist streams of evangelicalism uh, or the church that um, really was becoming increasingly concerned about the culture. But the response, if I can use more general you know, descriptions, was one of um, opposition and isolation. Uh, and yet there were also other streams of kind of this growing theological liberalism where there was a sense there had to be a third way to be robust and orthodox in theology but engaged in the big issues of culture not in an oppositional and angry way, but in a way that is collaborative and seeks for the blessing of the nation. And that's a deep part of the DNA. Uh, and so the NAE has long served as this place of collaboration. Right now, 40 different denominations, scores of uh, Christian nonprofits and institutions are NAE members. Uh, we represent uh, tens of thousands of churches and, and again, schools, uh, institutions, uh, nonprofit organizations that <clears throat> really seek to keep Christ central. Uh, and so we provide resources, opportunities to collaborate, uh, best practices, but also a, a spirit that reaffirms keeping the gospel the central thing while at the same time bringing people together in collaborative efforts that demonstrate that Christ and his body really can fulfill the prayer of John 17, that the world would see the oneness in Christ and that oneness itself would be a witness. What's it like being the president of the NAE? What's, what's the job? What do you do? And I guess maybe one interesting thing to ask you about is, um, you know, you became president in 2020 in the midst of the COVID epidemic and you've led the NAE through a lot of kind of social and cultural turmoil. So if I could ask a two-pronged question, what's it like being the president, and what's it like being the president right now? <laughs> <laughs> My predecessor described Leith Anderson being the president of the NAE as not herding cats, but herding squirrels. 
um, because it's a robust organization um, of denominations that are deeply engaged uh, with all sorts of issues. And the, the sense of collaboration is keenly felt, but really, really complicated because they're mission-specific uh, institutions that we want to respect their mission, and yet firmly believe that any individual mission can be greatly augmented by the corporate witness of the body of Christ followers working together. And so part of what it means to, to be president, that both is the joy as well as the challenge, mm -hmm. is I get a front row seat at the work of God in various denominations and in institutions, speaking at denominational conferences and yet hearing the reports at those conferences of what God is doing in every corner of our nation. So much of the dialogue right now about evangelicalism is about its fragmentation, about the political polarization that exists in our country. All those things are true. But what is the untold story that I get to see is the work of God that is still persisting in and through the church in its, all, in its myriads of forms, faithful Christ followers. And that's really exciting. So my job is to see it, to promote it, to augment it through collaborative efforts, and to engage in our public witness as Christ followers, as evangelicals, as good news people. You mentioned in your sermon today that the word evangelical has become kind of a hot topic over the last couple of years. And I wonder if you can um, talk to us about what does it mean to be an evangelical? And why is that a, still a good descriptive word to use of um this segment of Christians that you uh, work with and overseeing your work at NAA today? I mean, clearly, there's sociological evidence that, you know, the term evangelical is now increasingly being used in a variety of ways. Pew put out a study not too long ago that talked about the term evangelical even being used by people who have very little to no faith. And for them, it was um, a denominator of their political persuasion as much as it would be any you know, gentle nod toward religious belief. That, that's true. But having said that, part of evangelicalism is a recognition of our high view of Scripture, uh, the fact that Christ really can transform lives and calls us to that conversion to Him, uh, a call to action in its myriad of forms. And I hesitate to say this in the presence of a church historian, but the way that evangelicalism has been used in the great revivals of our country that represented the good news, the gospel, as something both in word and in deed, some of the most compelling forces of social transformation, deeply rooted in a relationship with Christ. Those things have always been at the central part of evangelicalism. Part of my job is to keep that central part the focus. But I would also have to say um, there is not simply central features to evangelicalism, there are central postures to evangelicalism. And the question of how does evangelicals, how do these sets of people relate to culture, integrate complex issues of faith and science, and that, that's not just a core identity issue, that's more of a posture issue of how one relates to culture. So I, I would say that um, evangelicals, you know, we have experienced ebbs and flows within our country uh, of vitality, spiritual vitality, of confidence and bold engagement with culture that's transformative in nature and then retreats from it out of fear or anxiety. 
And we're in an inflection point right now. There's no doubt about it. We're at a deep inflection point, the demographic changes in our country, the generational changes, uh, the reckoning with our history, um, the realization that we're increasingly in a post-Christian society, and we're needing to move from a majoritarian posture where we can assume that people have faith that is ours to a missional posture is, is a hard one to make. Easy to say, oh, we're no longer majoritarian, we're missional. It's very difficult to live. But it's not only our history that encourages me to hold on to this term. It's the global church. It's the fact that in attending the World Evangelical Alliance in 2019, 90 different countries in which the gospel is flourishing. And, and the common plea at the World Evangelical Alliance was do not give up the term. There was actually a panel at the WEA uh, of representatives from South America, from Asia, from Africa, and Europe. No American was on the panel. And the panel discussion was, what's going on with American evangelicalism? Mm -hmm. The Canadians were quick to say, you know, we're not Americans, so don't include us in that, right? But the common cons you know, consensus view was the term evangelical is robust and important in our context. And we hope that it remains so with the Americans because we need to be in this together. And I was walking away thinking, it's such an American thing to think if, if the term is inconvenient for us, let's just get rid of it. Why would I wish to disassociate myself with the global movement of God that is doing such a compelling and beautiful work? I want to be a part of that movement. I want to own that. So, no, I'm not ready to give up the term evangelical because to me it represents this movement of vitality in American history, but it represents an important moment of our global relationship right now with the church worldwide. Mm. I'm with you. Thanks for saying that. And I wanted to, to pose a question for you that would get you talking a little bit for our listeners about how God is at work around the world in his church today, just to kind of expand our horizons and give us a more worldwide understanding of the evangelical movement. Curse to me, we probably have a bunch of listeners to this podcast who don't know much about the World Evangelical Alliance. Uh, I've known about it for many years. My mother used to work for what used to be called WEF, the World Evangelical Fellowship. So I've paid attention, uh, and there's really exciting things they've been doing for a long time. Could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about it, and is there a formal relationship between the National Association of Evangelicals in this country and the World Evangelical Alliance? Yes, there is a formal relationship. So the World Evangelical Alliance is composed of representatives from all the national associations, called different things in different countries. Here it's the NAE, uh, but in other countries it may be you know, called by a different name. <clears throat> but uh, all these institutions, these organizations, uh, evangelical alliances, have decided once again that we are better together, that there is some movement of God throughout the world of good news people who are doing things both in the proclamation and in the living out of the faith, the gospel and word and deed. Uh, and um, we are better together. So it includes all sorts of things. Um, worldwide evangelistic efforts in which missions organizations again, see themselves not as competitors, but as collaborators. 
Bible translation work that the World Evangelical Alliance is able to, by the nature of being kind of a third-party association, uh, foster collaborative efforts. There's also issues of the persecuted church. Because of the World Evangelical Alliance, we are, at the NAE, in relationship uh, with national networks that are existing as underground churches, experiencing tremendous persecution. And the formal relationship leads to a deep representation of the spiritual ties. So advocacy um, in areas of religious freedom for the persecuted church um, is very much a part of the work of the World Evangelical Alliance. But you know there are, there are the things that you can never capture by uh, organizational charts, um, never captured just by a formal white paper on an issue. It is the humble relationship that evangelical leaders can foster with one another in the ownership and the solidarity of our life together uh, as the people of God that I think is tremendously powerful. We have the chance to learn from African believers who are seeing a revival of nearly unprecedented levels and take great encouragement from that. God's Spirit is absolutely at work and we have something to be praying for and learning from. The fortitude of the underground church in many parts of uh, East Asia is a profound challenge for the ease with which so many of us in America get to live out our faith. And, and so these kind of benefits of recognizing our relationship to the global church is not so much that we as American evangelicals have things to offer the rest of the world, though we still do. Theological resources at Beeson, much of the world would love to have this. But we have so much to learn from the rest of the world. And we are probably at a moment where we need to be a lot more humble in what we have to learn. Well, thank you for sharing about your work with the NAE and even what's going on among world evangelicals. Uh, before I ask you my next question, for our listeners who want to learn more or want to get involved, would you recommend they visit your website or do you have any other recommendations? Absolutely. Visit our website, uh, nae.org. Um, we have all sorts of resources, access to webinars. Uh, in particular, I would recommend a document that we have uh, called For the Health of the Nation, an evangelical call for civic engagement. I think more than ever, we need a nuanced approach that applies the gospel in a gracious, biblically thoughtful, and holistic way. And that's a resource you can download for free at our website. Well, thank you, and we commend that to you, uh, listener. Uh, we have mentioned that you are here for our commencement and that you gave this wonderful sermon on uh, God's interruptions. And by the time that this episode airs, your sermon will be um, on our YouTube channel. So listeners, we encourage you after this podcast episode to go over to our YouTube channel and uh, watch and listen to your sermon. But I wonder if you can just give our listeners a teaser of what you said and what they can expect to hear. We have our plans in life. We have the ambitions, the goals, and God has an uncanny way of interrupting it. But those interruptions become opportunities for us to recognize and respond to the ways that Jesus can quench our deepest thirsts. 
Dr. Kim, Kristen and I always like to conclude these podcast interviews by asking guests what they have learned from God recently. These days, that question can sound a little loaded. We've, we've all been going through so much kind of tumult recently. Um, but if you, if, could you, if you had to identify just one or, or two things by way of edifying our listeners before we sign off that the Lord's been doing in your life recently or teaching you recently, maybe even through your, your leadership of the NAE, what would it be? I have something very quick to say to that. Um, the, the complicated nature of the things that I am reflecting about, you know, what's the biblical response to immigration? What's the biblical response to the uh, racial issues of our day? Can immerse me in all sorts of complexities that are befuddling. How do you even understand it and apply it? Recently, I was deeply struck by my need to just remember Jesus loves me, even if I can't figure this all out. At the end of the day, he still loves me. Very simple lesson. And I'm struck by the fact that you never graduate from that lesson. Amen. You have been listening to Dr. Walter Kim. He is the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. We are deeply grateful to him for being with us today and for speaking into the life of our community, uh, speaking into the ongoing ministries of the next group of Beeson alumni. Thank you, Dr. Kim, for the whole day of ministry among us and for being with us on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. It has been a joy. Well, we love you, our listeners. Merry Christmas. Please pray for us. We are praying for you. And we say goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.